Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. On today's episode, I'm excited to welcome a guest whose voluminous list of credits have assured his place as a show business MVP. He's appeared in a diverse range of film and television, including roles in popular shows like Gilmore Girls, Curb Your Enthusiasm, and Will and Grace. In the world of horror, he's been in festival hits like You're Killing Me and Scream Teen Scream, as well as cult faves like Angel and Charmed. As a stage performer and comedian, he's performed across the country with amazing ensembles and in searingly funny one-man shows. Please welcome to the show actor, playwright, and all-around renaissance man, Sam Pancake. Oh, hello, Michael. Hello, Sam. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I never thought of myself as a playwright, but if, was, if I kind of have done that. So, yeah. Well, you write all your one-man shows, right? I do, and they are like plays. You're right. So, there you go. I'll take that. I'll That's take that. One of the things we like when we have guests uh, on Dead for Filth is opening new worlds to them. <laughs> <laughs> you did. You showed me myself through new eyes. <laughs> Well, Sam, why don't we kick off the show the same way I start every show with the same first question I ask every guest, and it is simply this, why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. What's your connection to the genre? Why do you think it appeals to people? But why horror? Uh, why horror? For me as a viewer, who, someone who loves watching horror movies and consuming horror, um, whether it's big screen TV or my laptop late at night, you know, as I fall asleep, um, it's just the visceral thrill, like the the just that unbeatable um, surge through you of excitement and thrills. And, you know, I, I have a lot of drama queen in me, as <laughs> many of us do. And you try to keep that out of your real life. I finally learned in my now my deep middle age to keep that out of my life as much as possible. So uh, but when you have that capacity for it, that like hunger for, um, you know, excitement and thrills, it you could you, you find it in horror movies, you know, um, from the basic, you know, kind of by the numbers jump scares to something like, like hereditary, which I just saw to, to old school, you know, I love the, I love the old dark house movies with Bella Lugosi and, and Boris Karloff and all those. I just recently went down a rabbit hole of a lot of Bella Lugosi stuff on YouTube that I didn't even know he had done. Do you have a, a new favorite Bella Lugosi movie that you recently discovered? Oh, wow. I can't think of the name of them. Uh, but yeah, I saw one where he, um, it's in color. Gosh, I wish I could think of the title, but it's a little bit, has this arch comedy and it starts off with this woman who's already dead and she's laying on this slab in this mansion. And it's in some sort of new experimental color at the time it's probably the late 30s or 40s but it has the strangest saturation and the strangest sort of grain to it and um she tells the story of how she was killed and bella lugosi comes to the house with this little person who's like his mini me um it might have a simple name just like the evil or the terror um well, we could look it up and hopefully you know you can put it on the thing but like i just saw that recently and it has just such a strange tone to it that i was i was kind of fascinated by it what i th think i really enjoy uh is that for audience members who know your work you are not necessarily immediately connected to the world of horror but you have told me that you yourself are a, a big horror fan huge horror fan yeah i would like to do more horror one thing that's not on my imdb i don't think that um I uh, that I did with Jim Hansen in 2003 and Jim Hansen is the same uh, my same good friend who directed You're Killing Me mm -hmm. which was as you said a festival hit and I think that was 2015 and then it's uh, also available streaming now and it's a wonderful movie that Jim co-wrote with Jeffrey Self um, 
in which I get horribly strangled to death by Matthew McCalligan. In 2003, we did a horror movie called Radiance that Jim just shot on video at the time. It was just to look like video in his house. And um, I love doing it. It was just like there's a group of friends. An event happens outside. No one's sure what it is, but no one can leave. And if they leave, they die. And in the movie, you don't know if it's uh, a nuclear explosion or some alien thing. Later, there was a movie with Roy Co Cochran and Mary McCormick, which was exactly the same thing, which was very strange because we did ours a lot earlier. But anyway... Jim gave me the chance to really like be terrified and scared and cry. And then I, in the movie, I get to the friends all turn on each other, like in a Lord of the Flies sort of the way, sort of way. And then I have to kill myself. I, they elect me to die and I drink um, this concoction and I die on camera. And it was so much fun. And I, I wish I got more in my professional life. And that was just, and you can see it on Jim's website, but um, it's called Radiance. Uh, which I guess I mentioned, but it, it, I, I want to do more stuff like that because you get to tap into a lot more of your different um, talents. Is horror an exciting genre as an actor, do you think? It is for me. I mean, I don't know how good I'd be. I certainly would not be a great final girl because I don't have the energy to keep screaming and running and falling <laughs> and like, you know, struggling and crawling and, and looking back over my shoulder um, in a negligee. Hey, hire me and I'll do it. I'll figure it out. Right. But um. I, you know, th and thank God, speaking of that, and again, like I told you, I'm, I have insomnia last night. I'm kind of kooky and all over the map today. But well, sleeplessness <laughs> is one of our favorite things here. It is great. Well, you got to get, got to make your peace with it, I have found. But um, I'm so grateful now that like in movies in general and also in horror that women are more empowered. Finally, they're writing them that way where they don't just get chased and killed. They get turned around and it could whack someone in, in the skull with an axe. Right. Um, but what was even the question? Oh, yeah, I think it's fun. But that's fun. I mean, how fun is that? You know, to, to get to scream and run and be scared. Um, I would love to do more horror stuff. I think it would be great. I like that you mentioned uh, doing it all in a negligee because it makes me really want uh, by this time next year to see like Night of the Negligee starring Sam Pancake. <laughs> Where I just play a negligee, <laughs> wrapping around people and getting, and they get killed in it. Well, you went somewhere even in more subversive than I was. I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, so you are more closely associated with the world of comedy. Yes. And one of the things that I really like to ask people who live in the comedy world when they're on is if you think there is a kinship between the world of horror and comedy, because I feel that there is oftentimes a thin line that exists between the hysterical and the grotesque. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's the release. It's that release valve in us as humans mm -hmm. of something building up either with uh, humor or comedy and the release is laughter or terror and suspense and the release is like a gasp or a scream. Um, so I think it's there in terms of that, that sort of like, you know, emotional charge that we both have. I, I, I saw, like I told you earlier, I saw Hereditary on Monday night and I loved it. I am in the camp. I didn't see a lot of the marketing material. I went in knowing very little and I had, I just, it's one of the scariest things I've ever seen, and it freaked the shies out of me. <laughs> but there were people laughing out loud at different things. Did you see it yet? I have. Okay. There were people, and I won't, no spoilers, I won't give anything away. Um, go see for yourselves. But there were people laughing out loud at different parts that other people were horrified by. And some people were annoyed by that and shushing the person, which is weirdly like, have your own response. Although I think this guy was kind of drunk because it was an over 21 screening. Um, 
but I was like, no, I get, I kind of got why he was laughing. Right. And I'll tell you later the scenes, but, but it was like, there was a bit of an arch tone in some of them or, or the situation was so heightened that laughter is a valid response maybe to that, you know? I think so. I mean, I've been involved uh, in the world of genre for so long and I've seen so many bizarre and grotesque things on screen and, you know, probably just out in life. Uh, but I find that that's usually my default reaction is to, okay. to laugh. And it's not that I don't recognize that it's horrif- horrifying or that I don't, you know, have the empathy. But I think it is for some people a default mechanism of catharsis where it's yes. like you are so shocked that your body uh, either wants to scream or it wants to laugh to put itself at ease. I remember uh, when the original Final Destination came out. Uh-huh. And I yeah. think this is long enough ago that I can spoil a scene where the girl steps off the curb and gets slammed by the bus. Yes. I When she gets hit by that bus, I remember sitting in the audience and just being like, because I didn't know what else to do. It it's was, a scream laugh, and you've never seen that before in your actual life. And who who predicts how how you will react in a situation? And laughter does come through. Exactly. I remember one time I was like always thinking of myself as such like a screamy girl. But one time I moved into a new house with my roommate. She was out of town, and in the middle of the night, what it turned out was this shelf we had put up in our bathroom with laden with all our many lady and gay guy beauty products <laughs> in the middle of the night crashed the floor and all I heard was so this hardwood floor and on top of the toilet so all I heard was this explosion of like this I didn't know what it was it woke me up my bed was right next to the near the bathroom and I and I was so proud of myself maybe that's maybe I shouldn't say proud but I was because that makes me sound like you know I'm not, a, I'm not ashamed of my feminine side, but when I woke up from that, I went like this, huh, 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 like it was this noise that never come out of me <laughs> because I always predicted me. I always thought before, like if something like that happened in the middle and I'd scream like, ah, but I, it didn't, it was this visceral, deep, low guttural, like, huh, huh. so you never know how you're going to react at a terrifying moment, you know? Right. But maybe those are the most honest moments. Oh, wait, so. I think so. I mean, especially coming up out of sleep, you know? For sure. But there's a difference in this screening of hereditary. There's a difference between like laughing obnoxiously because you're kind of drunk and actually having the genuine response to something that's kind of an uncomfortable laugh. Too. So there's it's, it was all over the map. So going back to the beginnings, uh, you know, when looking across your resume, I listed at the top of the show some of the, the highlights of things that you're in. But that barely scratches the surface. You've got so oh, many yeah. film and television credits that uh, it, it's just a lot to, it, it, to, to it, keep track of. It was a lot, Michael. <laughs> but it all had to begin somewhere. So, so tell me a little bit about when you were younger, your, your connection to the world of entertainment and when you decided to do this. I remember seeing a, I was probably three or four and my parents took me to the county fair in the county I was in at the time, which was Nicholas County, West Virginia. And they had these different little barn type structures that had different exhibits or whatever in them. And in one of them was this play. And it it was one of those like on purpose, oldie timey melodramas Mm -hmm. with the damsel in distress and the mustache twirling villain and the big, you know, buzzing Saul in in the, you know what I'm saying? Where they would put the woman on the the log and they would, and it was, and they had this heightened makeup. I realize now, you know, with the very big, big, um, big dark eyebrows on the villain and she had you know uh big popping eyes the 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 um the ingenue Mm -hmm. and um i just remember being absolutely thrilled and 
riveted by that and just thinking I want to be up there. And then before that, I the first movie I saw was Mary Poppins. And I was my, I was two and my mother said, oh, we thought you were going to fall asleep, but you were just glued to the screen the whole time. <laughs> um, and this was, again, also in southern West Virginia. And I was like, how do I do that? I want to be up there. I want to. I want to be up there with Dick Van Dyke and Julie Andrews and all the stuff. And I, and I never let it go. And some, I had no, I grew up in rural West Virginia, no connection to this industry at all. There was a a few things I wanted to be like artist, archeologist. I remember um, that didn't really, or, or architect, which I couldn't do math. So goodbye to that. But my parents let me go to theater school. Well, I went to Western university and got a BFA in theater, which was actually a really good Training. Is that in Morgantown? Morgantown. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. And uh, good old Morgan Howell. Go Mountaineers. And um, I just went to college and then I was in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina for a year and a half for no good reason. Ended up uh, doing featured extra work in this movie called Shag and then drove across country in 87 with 200 bucks in my pocket, knowing one friend in L.A. And I crashed in her her in her living room her dining room, rather. Um, and the weirdly got my SAG card. It seemed then like it took forever, but I got my SAG card through you know, a series of circumstances within a couple of years. And then I was doing commercials by like national network commercials and stuff by 90. And I did my first sitcom wings in 90. You, your first sitcom was wings. <laughs> yes. That's a pretty great one to go at. That was such a huge network hit. That's what everyone tells me. It's funny because, and this is no shade on wings and I love Steve Weber. I still see him around. We're still friendly. Um, but I didn't ever watch it. <laughs> it's all my episode. Steve Weber, who uh, frequently pops into the world of horror, he's been yeah. he's done a lot of Shining remake. The Shining right? remake. He was in a couple episodes of Masters of Horror, I believe. Was he in the Salem's Lot remake? Am I making that up? Uh, you know, I don't know. Okay. I, I, I'm, one of my policies on no, the show Rob is Lowe if, was yes. Why do I, yeah, Rob Lowe. If I don't know, I'm just honest about it. Uh, I you worked as a featured extra on shag that's a phoebe cates movie right yes phoebe cates bridget vonda <laughs> it was carrie hamilton who was carol burnett's daughter who passed away very young she was lovely um tyrone power jr um uh paige hannah who was, it was daryl hannah's sister it was a lot of relatives in that movie and bridget fonda i think i say her already yeah I like, you know, being attracted to the world of performance and that heightened uh, experience that you saw in the melodrama that you wanted to apply to your own life. Yeah. Uh, that right out of the gate in West Virginia, you managed to be in a movie with with some great people as featured extra. But, you know, a lot of people wander into movies that no one's ever heard of. Yes. Oh, that's true. It's, it's actually a really good movie. And I'm always surprised by how many people have seen it. And enjoy it. It's it's a great coming of age tale. Um, and it was, um, yeah, it's set in 1963. And we had little period costumes and clothes and I made two friends on that movie that summer my friends Jay and Monica both of who live in Manhattan now who I'm still really close to um this might be a time for me to mention maybe I should do it later like I do a one-man show about the last 30 years of my life being an out gay actor in Hollywood um including that stuff of being in shag and I'm doing it again at the end of July at the Casita del Campo on July 27th and 28th Right. And we've mentioned uh, Casita on the show before. It's a venue here in Los Angeles that is a theater in the basement of a Mexican restaurant that's curated by a fabulous man named Mr. Dan, Mr. Dan. who is a figure in queer L.A. history. Yeah. Uh, 
But no, I think this is actually a great time for you to mention that uh, because you you talk, you say your show is all about your your 30 year history of being an out gay man in Hollywood. And one of the things we talked about when you're looking at your origins and interest in the world of acting in West Virginia, which mm-hmm. uh, I imagine was a very conservative place. Yes. And my uh, father was a Presbyterian minister. So, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, you go and you see a melodrama, which in a way is sort of straight drag. Yeah, it absolutely was. That's so interesting. And it was campy in in a way. Right. And it was over the top. And I remember just being really attracted to those heightened emotions. So do you feel like there has always in some way been a connection to your attraction to this heightened world of performance and your queer identity? I think so. And it's, it's an interesting, Michael, and I hit on this on the, in the show, which is called Wasted on a Boy. I should mention that when I explain why in the show. But like, I was so riveted by Julie Andrews as a kid, Mary Poppins, Sound of Music, and then also Judy Garland in Wizard of Oz, not knowing any other gay people, not knowing that Judy Garland was a gay icon. This was like in the mid to late 60s, as I was a tiny little boy in West Virginia, and having such a a resonance with both of those women, Mm -hmm. especially Judy is, you know, as we all know now, a huge gay icon. But what is, I'm always curious about that. I remember RuPaul talking about it once on his podcast and I can't remember what he said. And he, you can look it up and he, you can hear him say it, but like why we were, why gay men of a certain age and lots of people, obviously gay or straight, no matter what age attracted to the Judy Garland thing, you know, because I didn't know that that was, I had no way of knowing she was a gay icon when I was this, three-year-old in West Virginia. No, I think that's interesting. And we've talked about it in certain ways. You mentioned earlier the concept of the final girl. And we've talked about final girls for a lot of queer horror fans who like very early on attached their queer identity to the world of horror yes. being drawn, not necessarily to the monsters, but to Jamie Lee Curtis. Absolutely. And, Laurie Strode, yeah. yep. and the idea or, you know, or some of the women from Friday the 13th or whatever. And I think that when you start stepping back, at least with the with regard to the final girl, they usually always represent an outsider in some That's way. So wise, Michael, because I recently and this is like. I don't mean to keep talking about myself, but... Uh, well, that's why you're uh, on oh, the right. show. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. But I mean, this is more personal self-disclosure, but I am a gay man in my early 50s. I came of age sexually in, got, uh, in the mid-80s. Right. Um, my therapist said recently, I, I had also a drug and alcohol problem, which I now talk about in, this sh- in that show also. Meth, coke, uh, pills, you know, speaking of Judy Garland, uh, lots of booze that like was manageable for a while and then it wasn't. And I'm sober now. And so I had lots of, you know, sexual experiences. Uh, And my therapist is always like, and he's from Kentucky and he has a similar accent to what I used to have. And he says, for a gay man your age, you're extremely lucky to be alive. So I so relate to those final girls like Laurie Strode at the end or Amy Steele in Friday the 13th part two, who I got to know later when I was working in casting was so thrilling. Any of the great final girls. Um, uh, just like it felt like as our friends dropped around us and I went through so much death in the eighties and nineties and beyond, uh, friends, roommates, my, my uncles, my boss, my uncle and my boss from AIDS, lots of friends through AIDS, addiction, suicide. You do feel like, um, you do feel like someone's like, you're just like, the there are groups that I've been in um, that I'm like, you know, the last man standing, right. you know, and you do feel kind of like the final girl in a lot of ways. Um, 
What a very real and uh, prescient analogy. I think that that's a layer that we've never talked about before. And in, in, in that connection, I think that it, we always approach the discussion of the final girl in relation to queer people as she's the tomboy, so she's not part of the popular clique or whatever. Yes. I think, or she's a little bit geeky or she yeah. you know, keeps to herself or she likes to read. Yeah. But I think that you're peeling back a layer of something that maybe we don't talk about a lot because it's difficult to talk about yeah. because there is a whole generation of queer people who uh, survived, who survived, who surely have to have PTSD from just yeah. life. And that, um, wow. I mean, that's, that's, that's so heavy. It's interesting. Cause I was, you know, I'm uh, or in my early fifties and I, um, when I was, I, I, when I first moved to town, I, I found, Long story, I started working in a casting facility and eventually started working as an assistant and then associate to a commercial casting director who was an amazing gay man named Mick Dowd. And he's still doing that. He's still out there. He's was a really wonderful part of my life. And so I my day job was working in commercial casting and he was a gay man who was probably 15 to 20 years older than me. And he would show me photographs. And this is in the early 90s of him and his friends in the 80s, 12 of them. He's like two of us are still alive. And his his romantic and business part of their time died of AIDS while I was working for him. And so men older than me, gay men and other people older than me lost a lot more than than I did. Right. But I still was around for that. And um, I had you know so many friends who right before I mean, talk about drama and it, it just, you know, not to cheapen it, but just people who just hung in there and then died. And then the fucking cocktail came out the next year. Right. You know, it just is. And then issues of not having health insurance. And there's so much that we all went through. Um, and I am, you know, yeah, I'm very grateful that I'm well. And navigating a career in film, which is not easy, during all of that must have really aided to a lot of that chaos in your life, I'm yeah. sure. It's one of the reasons I did this show, Wasted on a Boy, is to tell my story of like going through all that, not just the like the casting things of like being too thought, thought of as too gay and light right. and energetic and flamboyant and then not being cast. And then later on, after Will and Grace, everyone wanted Jack. And if you went in and did your lines like, ladies, they wanted you to be all like, fasten your seatbelts. But like, I would be like, okay, fasten your seatbelts. And I would be like, I'm a gay man. That's how I talk. If this character's gay, why can't it just be that? And then right. you wouldn't get the part. And then all the other things. And then also my drug and alcohol problem, which definitely was exacerbated by, you know, <laughs> I, I realize now all the horrible emotional stuff I was going through. So that's interesting because I was going to ask you about that because you moved out here in 87. Yes. And you write a Halloween week. I'll have you know. Oh, how <laughs> <Just> very perfect. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and you, you've been out your whole career, right? Yes. I mean, early on, like I was out to, I made a choice for working at Johnny Rockets was my last, like, well, I, uh, there's a little, there's a, basically my last table waiting job was Johnny Rockets. Right. And I remember like one of my managers asking me at one point, are you into girls or guys? And I was like, girls. And I was, that was, and I, that was like 88. And I remember thinking like, I'm never doing that again. It makes me want to vomit. And the guy didn't freaking care. I don't even know why I was right. lying, but I had so much true valid fear of growing up in rural West Virginia where faggot, queer, homo was the worst thing you can be and punishable by death. Right. And certainly, you know, no one was. So anyway, I came from that kind of background. So then I was like, I don't have the energy or the interest. I moved to LA, LA to get away from all that shit. Whether I make it or not in this business, I'm going to 
starve in the sun and I'm not going to be in the closet. I'm just going to see where the chips fall and fingers crossed. And, you know, luckily the world evolved. Um, but um, you must have surely seen the evolution, though, because there probably was a lot. Of, I, you said that Will and Grace was such a benchmark. Yeah. I'm an eyewitness. That's, again, why I decided to do the show, though I'm not famous and I didn't like I haven't had the heights I've liked to hit. I've hung in there and made a living. And so um, I, this one guy who I who I was. Um, how, how do you say fucking uh, <laughs> this guy? I do improv with some just just whatever. Just throwing that in for fun. Anyway, he we were talking about it when I was about to do the show again because I'd done different versions of it before. And he was like. He was, and I was telling him about it. I said, but you know, I sometimes feel like, oh, I'm not famous enough to like really be like, here is my story. He was like, I would rather, and this is another young, queer um, man, comedian who was extremely talented. And he was like, he said, I'd rather hear from someone in the trenches what they went through than like the person who made it and has been rich and famous their whole life. You know, there is, you know. I think a, a, a separation from reality when people live in the upper echelon for too long. Uh, I mean, those stories are interesting too. And of course, for people who are obsessed with tales of Hollywood, we're always going to gravitate towards yeah. the, the dynasty type stories. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I think that, you know, the glamour and the dazzle. Yeah, exactly. And there is an appeal to that, but I think that's important. And what's important to me and which was one of the benchmarks uh, of not benchmarks, but rather foundations of creating Dead for Filth was I, of course, I'm a horror fan and I'm interested in queer history. And I saw so much cross section and I saw so many stories that required attention and deserved to be preserved because these are really stories that represent all of us in a different way. And everyone comes in and tells a different tale from growing up in West Virginia or, you know, being a little baby drag queen in Baltimore yeah. or whatever. And what I think is really important, of course, I love horror movies, but what the show is really about is telling those kids who were us at one point yep. who didn't know they could do it. Yeah. And I wish I had a me. Yeah. Um, I wish that I, I didn't really have other than my boss, who was great, but he wasn't a performer or comedian or uh, direct uh, or actor. Right. Um, I didn't have any gay role models who were gay men 10, 15 years older than me. Either they were deeply in the closet. Right. Or they were sick or they were no longer alive. Right. The men that who would have been those. So that's what my kind of one of my platforms is to try to be a good older gay mentor, if possible, or a role models kind of pushing it. But just, you know, like I and I do think I serve that function like with Gio, you know, who's like my little uh, my my podcasting partner. And he's also the drag queen Roz Dress for less like we got to raise the children. I say that to, <laughs> I say that to a lot of my friends like to Drew Drogia. Drew's a lot younger than me and we'll be having problems with the younger person who we're working with or in some sort of like not necessarily even business or socially with. And I was like, Drew, we got to, it's on us sometimes to raise these gay kids, you yeah. know, it's just like in the, the house culture and different version, you know, the bowl culture in um, in, in New York and Paris is burning. It's like, we, it's on us to raise the kids, you know? Well, because not, Everybody, even in 2018, has a family support system. And yep. that is the truth of the gay community is that we can create our own family. Absolutely. And even if they do have a warm, supportive family, um, the family's probably not gay. Yeah. You know? And there are things they're not going to know. Yeah, exactly. Uh, wow. I mean, that's so important. And I think that, you know, that you were out early in your career... And you witness that trajectory and that change is very important for people to hear because it shows that change does happen. Yeah, it does. I, I always, 
always, Michael, say from tech, technology to social things, even despite what we're going through now. And again, I understand that I speak from a, a place of white privilege. I absolutely understand that. Right. And I and I had no and I still am coming to terms with that. Um, I was not we were not poor. So that was, um, you know, I'm so that's one of the reasons. I look at my friends and I'm like, oh, we were all sort of like upper middle class white people. So we all had that. However, I will say, what was my point? So I just want to make the clear that I understand that. But wait, what was I talking about? About change and evolution. Oh, but there has been so much good change. Oh, what I was going to say is things are so much better now than they ever were. Right. They're so much better now. You can make so much of your own stuff. There are sometimes there's less money in terms of getting your quote for TV, but there mm. are so many more jobs. Things are so much better. And every time I meet a younger person who, and I meet them a lot, they like to come to daddy. I don't know why they're <laughs> like, Oh, how do I, it seems so hard. And I'm like, let me tell you what it was like when there were three networks of scripted material, not 50, hundred of them. You know, there's so much more stuff to do. There's no YouTube to make your own stuff for. There was no, there were obviously, obviously no internet or social media to share or platforms to share your stuff on. You know, I love, I love it. I'm just grateful for how things are now. Things are so much better now. Well, let's talk a little bit about a career that has witnessed all kinds of change. Like you said, you've seen the change in acceptance of gay characters and gay actors and and queer performers. But you've also seen how the opening of the digital world has created new platforms for new voices to be heard. Uh, And over that time, from the time you moved here, Halloween week, 87 to now in 2018, Mm -hmm. you have been in many, many projects. You've done Mm -hmm. a lot of gay features. You've done a lot of television. You do a lot of different things. Uh, So because you've done so many amazing roles on so many popular television programs. Uh, I just want to do like a quick hit list of these numerous roles. Uh, What are a few of your faves that you've, you've done? Mm. That's question one. I, uh, I think, well, one thing that's, uh, that I did a show that I got to be a series regular on love spring international, which was an improvised sitcom about a matchmaking service that I did with Jane Lynch and Wendy McClendon Covey and Jack Plotnick. Um, and um, Jennifer Cox, produced by Eric McCormack of Will and Grace. Um, that was so fun because we had, it was a difficult, long days, all of it improvised, but we had so many great guest stars. That was a real special experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved working with Reese Witherspoon for a w- just one long, great week on Legally Blonde 2. Not the greatest movie ever, but um, she's a delight. And that was, you know, it's nice to be in a studio film. Well, did you hear they're wanting to do a I Legally Blonde 3? Maybe yeah. you'll get a call. Well, if I recall correctly, my character really Fs her over. Like, uh, so I, I don't think I will be well, doing that. We'll I'm, see. I'm hope- hopeful. We'll see. Fingers yeah. crossed. Me and John Cantwell, who's in, you know, he's in one. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, also, uh, Arrested Development was so much fun. That was one of those shows where they were like, well, you ca-? my friend Abraham Higginbotham worked on it and he was now the showrunner for Modern Family. And he said, and I knew Mitch Hurwitz already from having met with him uh, for other projects that I didn't necessarily get. And they were like, will you come do this part really quickly? And I was like, yeah, sure. And he was like, you're playing Henry Winkler, Henry Winkler's assistant. And I was like, oh, hell yeah. <laughs> so I did that before that show even started airing. Um, so that was pretty magical. Friends was always a hoot to do. And <laughs> and the gift that keeps on giving um, in terms of residuals. Will and Grace, because I was friends with Sean. 
Megan's so fun. Um, I didn't know. I got to know Eric later because he was my boss and Deborah didn't know that well. And none of my scenes were with her, but I had so much. I only did three of those, but it was always so much fun to be backstage with uh, Sean and Megan and them just like pull me aside as for me, it felt like, oh, here's a sane person. We just have to flood him with all this gossip and details and all the crazy <laughs> shit that's going on around here, which I like. And Max Muchnick, who and David Cohen put me in a lot of things. So that's been great. Doing Curb Your Enthusiasm was great. That was doing a guest star on that was something that I that kind of launched me into a lot more guest stars. I'm always I've ran into Larry David at the I Feel Pretty premiere recently. And I I almost went over to him and said, do you remember when you called me a cunt? But I'm not that person because he calls me a cunt in the show. Right. And right. my character, my character is a cunt. He did not. He did not call me that in real life. He's a lovely man, <laughs> uh, but he's still Larry David. Right. Uh yeah, so there's just been like a lot of a lot of great stuff. I recently, not that recently, but like a year and a half ago, I did the Mick with Caitlin Olson, who I adore. Um, I still want to be on Sunny. I please put me in Sunny. It's always Sunny in Philadelphia, Caitlin. I haven't done that one yet. So that was uh, a list of faves, and they're listen to how many you just rattled off. That's some awesome. Well, I'm elderly, content. Michael. You must understand. But. My next question, and I'm sure there's probably some crossover with those, of a lot of the shows you've done, uh, are there some underappreciated or underseen performances you wish had gotten more attention? Oh, um, oh yes, gosh. Um, I wish I had my MDB in front of me. I, crap. We can, I, I've done some things that have never come out um, yet. Like I did a, a digital series called Kick about a rehab that um, my friend Lucy Davis, who's now doing the chilling adventures of Sabrina, and she's in Wonder Woman as Etta Candy. Oh, she's she great. wrote with a with another woman this project that like we shot like a couple year and a half ago, and I'm not sure what's going on with it. I mean, I do know, but it's just complicated to explain. I I know what's going on with it. I wish that would get out there. It had such an amazing cast. Um, I've done a couple of. Uh, I did a movie once with where Leslie Ann Warren and Dan Hedaya played. I was a this guy's boyfriend played by this, this actor, Rob Derringer, who's a so punk now. And it was a really gritty, raunchy, twisted. Um, it came after American beauty mm. about America and a family going through all this shit. And, uh, Leslie and Warren and Dan Hedaya played the parents and it never came out. And I, it was one of the many times where I'm like, this will put me on the map for indie cred. And it did not. <laughs> um, there's a couple things that didn't come out that I'm really grateful. Didn't come out. Um, Gosh, I can't think off the top of my head. <laughs> well, you know, you've, you've already listed a number of things. And then we talked about this a little bit earlier when we were talking about how you'd like to do more horror movies. But I'll open yes. it up a little bit since we're talking about kind of the breadth of your career. Is there a kind of role that you haven't been able to do or what a kind of performance that you haven't done yet that you would like to do? Um, so many, so many things. I, I wish that I would just get called in for a base. And I do sometimes just like a, a guy who is not necessarily gay, mm -hmm. you know, who's just sort of like, and I get called in and sometimes I get them They're playing an attorney here or the head of a, you know, the head of the medical board there, right. you know, it, it just basic things that like you make some money and they stay in, res you get residuals and I, um, but I really like to do something where I get to play the different characters that I do. Right. I like a, this won't, I, well, I'll never say never, but like, like a Tracy takes on type situation where there's like three or four characters that I can do really well and just put them in different situations. That that would be a dream. 
So going, walking through all of these, like a memory lane trip to all the different parts, uh, it is a nice segue into another project of yours I wanted to ask about, because obviously when you talk about genre films and sort of the fandom that exists around them, you can't avoid the discussion of nostalgia. Yeah. And you were involved in a feature film project that I feel is very rooted in nostalgia that you were not only in, but you were a co-writer on. And that's uh, what Space Station 76. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. Yeah. Of course. That's something I wish people would see more. Uh, Jack Plotnick shepherded that project in 2001. He, Kali Rocha, who's most recently was on Man with a Plan with uh, Matt LeBlanc tons of stuff the mom on live and maddie on disney michael stoyanoff who was uh the brother on um the not joey lawrence brother on blossom jennifer elise cox who's a good friend the four of us improvised this play we wanted it to be um the ice storm in space mm-hmm. on a space station and we did and then eventually long road long story it ended up being a feature film i did not get to play my part because patrick they needed a star so patrick wilson played my part um Liv tyler played Kali's part Kali jack wrote another part for Kali, and through it's a strange situation but marissa coughlin who was wonderful played jen's part um, and it's such a good movie. Jack directed it. He did an amazing job. And it was, it's set on a space station in what our idea of what the future would be like in the 1970s. Right. Um, Matt Bomer's in it. He played Jack part. I just saw Matt last month on boy. It, so good to see him. We went backstage after boys in the band to hang out with all those amazing. Speaking of like how things have changed going back, this is kind of a sidebar, but going back to see Charlie Carver, Zach Quinto, Matt Bomer, Tuck Watkins, all these guys that I know. And then also, and Jim Parsons, who I've also met just all these guys and, and Andrew Reynolds, who I am no secret. So my big celebrity crush finally got to meet him, whatever, whatever <laughs> going backstage, all these guys, famous out working careers. Like that's right. all roughly, you know, except for Tuck, who I've known for thousands of years and we're around the same age or like 10 to 15 years younger than me. That is changed, my friends. That is undeniable. Absolutely. Change. Anyway, so Matt's amazing in the mu- in the movie. He's such a great guy, you know, just smart beyond obviously very dazzlingly beautiful, smart, funny, gets it delightful. Um, yeah, but that was we wanted to to have something in the play in the movie like there's nothing I love more than a long, uncomfortable silence, mm-hmm. a tense. I mean, hilarious to the audience, but to the characters, just a tense. Bizarre, like there was one scene in the play that they don't really do in the movie where it lights up. It's the because it's just like five people on the space station and a child. And it's just Jennifer as the mom playing this thing on a spoons. For an uncomfortably long time on stage, just the daughter and the mother hitting spoons back together, like entertaining us as the four of us just sit and smoke and stare at them (laughs) just like for a weirdly long time on stage. And that there's a little bit of that in the movie where they're going around to the and caroling at the doors at Christmas. Anyway, it was it was an amazing experience. And Patrick Wilson is just like so dreamy. What I like about the film is it definitely feels very loving uh, as an homage to yeah. a lot of genre cinema of yesteryear, a lot of genre television of yesteryear. That was all Jack. That was Jack's Jack. It was Jack's idea. We improvised it together. He shepherded it and he did such an amazing job of, and you should have him on the podcast if you haven't already. Um, he's also in you're killing me. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, um, he, uh, that was all him and his desire to make something about all of our dysfunctional seventies suburb. Well, my was country. I wish I was in the suburbs, suburban childhoods of just like (laughs) alcoholism and marital 
strife and parents who don't know how to communicate with the children and uh, men who were in the closet and married, you know, uh, just all kinds of things. Well, nostalgia is just such a powerful uh, thing in the world of genre because we can take these very serious issues and put sort of like the sheen of yesteryear on them and then lambast them as well. And I think what's really cool about Space Station 76 is you you kind of make fun of, of all of these very serious issues within the context of, uh, an old spacey program and there a uh, project of yours uh, that you were in that I mentioned at the top of the show also is, is very nostalgia based that is horror and that was screen te- scream teen scream yes uh, which was very much a send up of 80s horror movies yeah that was before the movie scream that that was a very self-referential about other horror movies things the characters are named Jamie Lee Blair I forget something like that but spoofs on Linda Blair and Jamie Lee Curtis um, Jackie Beat wrote that, um, and it's it's just really, <laughs> it's really good. It was shot on video, which that's what we did in '95, right? But uh, yeah, it was it still holds up. I I am not a fan of any looking at myself and my work in the '90s, but I actually I think I was also I did that as a play so many times. I'm actually fine in that movie, which I don't hate. I mean, I look ridiculous and I'm ugly. And I'm in a giant pink Power Ranger suit and the character is a clown, but I, my acting's not terrible. That's what I I remember. (laughs) What I love about both of these genre projects is in different ways they began as plays. Yes, they both did. Yeah. Which is a a good segue into a lot of the work that you do in in stage shows. We've talked a lot about the the one man show that you're doing right now. You also have shows that are character driven. Uh, yes. <laughs> with, is it Fritzy? Fritzy Zimmer, which I, I don't know when this will come out, but I'm doing him this Sunday, June 17th, a father's, a special Father's Day show where he's the world's oldest openly gay stand up comedian and tap dancer and self, self designated song stylist. Um, and he's kind of a mix between Rip Taylor, who I've worked with, uh, Charles Nelson Riley, Elaine Stritch, and uh, Martin Shorts, like Jiminy. Glick or Jackie Rogers characters like an old showbiz like like fire you know what's the word spitfire Um, and he's got a lot to say and tell stories and he's been through it all and he sings and you've done just as much stage I feel like as you have TV you've got you've been working so do you have a preference between the two I like the money of the TV and movies (laughs) and the commercials I really now I'm hitting a groove with like I finally feel more confident on stage that's why I, I not just because it's something to do, because I am single and I have no pets of children. My children were taken from me. No, not just kidding. Um, they, it's, I, I enjoy getting up and doing these shows, you know, a casita or, or the celebration, doing these one man shows. Now that I feel a comfort with writing them and performing them, that I'm kind of hitting a groove with that right now. And one thing that you do a lot in your stage work, uh, and we sort of briefly touched upon this when we discussed uh, the melodrama that you saw as, uh-huh. a, as a kid, is is that connection to the world of drag. Yeah. And, and you do drag performance in a lot of your stage yes. shows. Although you, or maybe I'm wrong, you've never worked specifically as a drag queen outside of shows? Or? No, I, I've always said... I'm an, a character actor and some of the characters I play are women. Mm-hmm. Um, throughout the 90s, like we would do different li- <clears throat> live stage versions of like the movie Foxes or Say It Almost Fire or Facts of Life. I was Blair with a lot of the same crew, including Jackie and other people. Um, uh, yeah, I just like always felt like there's something in me that I like to play women. Right. And I don't know. And I've it, literally when all the trans stuff has, has been going, I'm like, am I? I'm like, no, I know I'm not trans. 
I, you know, one knows when one is certainly yes. at my age, uh, but there's a lot of lady in me and she likes to come out. And there's a lot of teen girl bitch in me. <laughs> um, have you noticed? But I, but I don't, I know being very close friends with Jackie beat and Sherry vine and, and having known lady bunny forever. And, and, and now being friends with Bianca, I, I know what's involved in drag. I know I'm not a drag queen. My God, right. how they put that. I can't do my makeup for one thing. Right. When I do it, geo Roz does my makeup, but I like getting up looking real pretty sometimes and calling myself cinnamon pancake with an S or playing the character that I play in my hot, sticky and sweet show. Who's a Southern drag queen named hell of the bottom Carter. Though there are other Queens named that. So I might change it when when we picked it, we thought it was, we made it up. We had not, it turns out, but I like playing that character. So I like playing a drag queen character, but no, I am not a drag queen. Right now. I will ask you though, because you've performed in drag before and, uh, there seems to be an attraction to, uh, horror and comedy, both in the world of drag. Yeah. And do you think that is going back to what we discussed about just a commitment to heightened sense? I think so. Don't you? Like, I, I remember always being, I grew up in a very beautiful country on a river in this big old rambling colonial mansion, if for lack of a better word, right. a, a farmhouse, not, not, not fancy, right. just like, but very big, you know, barns and pump houses and ice houses and hedges and gardens and, and hunting and fishing and just hiking and natural beauty. And I wanted none of it. I wanted, I don't know what this attraction was to the artifice. And I think that that's what the melodrama was, was like seeing this, these heightened emotions in this, these costumes and makeup on stage. Like you said, it's like straight drag. I was so always like, I want to be in the big city with the sparkling lights. I want to be in Times Square. I want to be on stage. I want not real life. I want a better version of real life. Um, all that stuff. I always craved that sort of thing. And there's a Carrie Fisher quote. What is it like? I can't think of it now. I also love Postcards from the Edge so much. That movie, the book, all of it. Well, if my life wasn't funny, it would just be true. There's that one, which is yeah. absolutely yeah. true. Um, but also the, we're better, we're built better for public. We're more built for public than for private. I always like, you know, I'm fine at getting up and being like, <laughs> being another person or pretending to be a heightened version of myself. I do less well at home alone, figuring out how, what to do, how to put a meal together or get my car service. Like that's where I'm like, what, but you know, put me in six inch heels and makeup and get out there and vamp for an hour and a half. No problem. Isn't that the truth of most people in entertainment? I yes. swear, like, <laughs> the second I am given a task, you're going to produce this project, you're going to write this script, and these things that are very large and difficult, I have no problem. I can batten down. I can make it happen. Yeah. I can sit on a microphone and just, you know, spiel for an hour. But the second you're like, but, like, let's make a meal or do your taxes or, like, yeah. you need to get the valves changed on your car. Yes. I just baffled. How how do people do these yeah, things? I grew up in a world where my father, I learned how to drive when I was 11. I knew how to load a gun and, and he showed me how to change the oil. Like, I just didn't, I wasn't interested, didn't hold my attention. And it's also that thing of, like. I and I do dip, but I have dipped my toe into the stand up waters. And I, I, I call it more like me telling a story more right. than like stand up. But like I, I did one hour one man shows before I did stand up. Right. I would rather do an hour by myself on stage than do seven minutes of stand up. I don't know why. And that's changed. But that that's I'm it's I'm like, oh, it's easier just to be up there for 10 minutes. Right. But it's I don't know. I've seen you at stand up shows before. Oh, good. And you still yes. and you still do a very storytelling format. Yes. Yeah. Which I like, I, you know, because I think that especially when you're in an evening of comedians, a lot, even though everyone brings a different voice, there's yes. that tendency to be like, 
set up the joke, knock it down, set up the joke, knock it down. Whereas I'm a storyteller. So I really gravitate towards people that are, you know, here's seven minutes and I'm going to take you on a journey. And maybe the real joke is the end of the story. But by the time you get there, I think the audience really feels something. Yeah. I I, I just did Saturday night and I told about like, I just got a long story diagnosed with celiac disease and which is so goddamn annoying because I love gluten in all its forms. But I just told the story of the, the, genuinely truly comic circumstances around my incredibly flamboyantly gay doctor and him telling me and all this other stuff and and, and P, my thing is like you're gonna laugh like I maybe shouldn't do this but I come out and say like I just so you know I'm not so much a stand-up as a minor American television character gay actor with a story to tell <laughs> and here we go so yeah if they laugh they laugh you know so uh, one of the places I've seen you do stand up is uh, Roz's Humor Hole. And yes. you have referenced uh, Geo slash Roz Dres for less yes. a few times on the show. And one of the things I want to talk about before we head off into the night is the fact that you have a podcast mm-hmm. of your own. So people who are listening to you here who enjoy you can also track you down on a show called The Gasp, which the, you co-host with Geo Andy. Tell us a little bit about that. The Gasp is a podcast that we do at my kitchen. And I live um, semi-infamously in the guest house of actress busy phillips um which is a, a, a tv show in and of itself we're, we're working on that and we have my fate or if geo knows them too our famous friends come in uh to and we just do an hour conversation with them and the gasp is based on our names geo andy and sam pancake of course now geo is mostly ross dress for less because since we started the gasp he's become ross dress for less and like his you know just he's just having this race to the top. We are, we're doing this event tonight where we were listed as local favorites, Sam Pancake and Roz Dress for Less. And I'm like, I'm in here 30 goddamn years. And this one's become a local favorite in a record amount of time. The little <laughs> Eve Harrington. Um, but I'm very happy. So yeah, we do like we've had, you can go to iTunes or podbean.com. We've had Bianca Del Rio, Trixie Mattel, Willem to like Lauren Graham, Connie Britton, um, Dan Bukatinsky, Karen Kilgariff of My Favorite Murder, which is speaking of podcasts, one of my faves, all kinds of, uh, it's try to keep it LGBT diverse and allies and female. We've had right. one straight guy, Harold Perino of many things, including Lost and Oz and he had played my husband in a movie where he did drag as Dolly Parton, which comes out at the end of the summer. What's interesting <laughs> is a previous guest of the show, Matthew Rodriguez, who writes for Into Magazine, he texted me the other day and he said, do you know of any circumstance where the uh, archetype of the manic pixie dream girl is represented as a man? And I said, my first thought is uh, Harold Perrineau in Romeo and Juliet is Mercutio. Yes, yeah. and because he like has this just otherworldly, you know, pixie kind of yeah. presentation. Like mischief maker, you yeah, know, trickster. Yeah, well, he and I talked a lot on set about that a little bit because I was like, "You did drag before." He's like, "That was only one scene." I'm like, "God, but that's the scene I remember so clearly." Well, because I think it sort of speaks to our earlier discussion of the evolution of media that we have borne witness to, that there was a time when you were a queer person uh, going to the movies or watching TV, we literally had nothing to latch on to. Mm-hmm. So when right. you saw like even the vaguest hint, a bangle in the dark, you know, <laughs> yes. there you would like grab onto it. <laughs> and sparkle in the wind. I don't know that Baz Luhrmann necessarily thought that he was making the queer version of Romeo and Juliet, but for that like brief sparkling moment yeah. where he's just up there and you know young hearts run free Free, you're just like oh my god yeah uh and that's that uh to me is just all part of the the cinematic journey that we go on with the media we attach to yeah (laughs) (laughs) well speaking and then we sit in 
Lost in thought and reverie for a minute. Yes. Well, you were the one who said you like long silences. <laughs> Tense, angry, <laughs> yet comedic. Yeah. Uh, so speaking of uh, constantly evolving and, and the next thing, uh, what is next for you? What's coming up? What are you working on? Well, I am this. I don't know when this comes out, but this Sunday I'm doing my Fritzy Zimmer show at the Celebration Theater, celebrationtheater.com. And then I'm doing Wasted on a Boy at the end of July, the 27th and 28th at Casita. Tickets will be on sale for that soon. We're doing Golden Girls again. Jackie, Beat, Sherry, Vine, Me, Drew Drogi, and Gio, Roz Dress for Less, in August. Um, and then the movie Dumplin' that I, in which I work with Harold and Jennifer Aniston and Kathleen and Jimmy and Daniel McDonald of Patty Cakes, directed by my dear friend Ann Fletcher, who just did my podcast. Um, that comes out, I think, end of, they're looking at end of August, beginning of September. It's called Dumplin'. Did I say that? Yeah. It's a, based on a novel of the same name. Uh, the series I'm supposed to be doing this summer just got pushed again, so I don't know oh, when okay. that's a true policy. Oh, yeah. You know, and there's a lot of like, I'm finally to the, excuse me, I'm finally to the point where like my friends, either young people who have really made it quick, made it to the top quickly, or old friends are showrunners on their own shows, and there's always like, I'm going to write a part for you, you're going to be in this or that, and I'm like, just sitting back and waiting for that to happen. Right. And I'm sure there's like seven other things. I'm starting my own podcast soon, which I told you about. We're in call. It's going to be called Sam Pancake presents the Monday afternoon movie in which I sit down with a friend uh, and we watch a 1970s made for TV horror or supernatural movie that I was obsessed with as a kid. Mm -hmm. um, so that will be later in the summer. And I don't know. So many things. Well, this is a good uh, segue moment then, too, because uh, normally at this point in the show, as we wind down, I always ask people if there's a movie that they've seen recently or a horror film that uh, they enjoyed or inspired them. You mentioned Hereditary at the top of the show, but maybe as a, a plug for uh, Sam Pancake Presents, presents yeah. uh, why don't you tell us a, a TV horror movie that you really think that Dead for Filth listeners need to dig their teeth into? Okay, this is... There's, a, there's a, a bunch I could say, but I'm going to say this one that I've watched repeatedly on YouTube called The Curse of the Black Widow. It's with Patty Duke and Donna Mills. They play sisters. And Patty Duke has a, you find out she has a split personality. And it probably was a pilot because it's a, a, the movie also features sort of this, I think the actor, I get the mixed touch. It's either Tony Franciosa or James Franciscus. I think it's Tony Franciosa. He plays a detective, sort of like in the Night Stalker thing, but it's in L.A. Mm -hmm. in the 70s. And his secretary is played with wacky aplomb by Roz Kelly, who was Pinky Tuscadero in Happy Days. And the detective is tracking this murder. And you, sorry for the spoilers, but you'll still enjoy it. Basically, Patty Duke is under a curse where she, as the sister turns into a giant black widow spider <laughs> as you do as you do and kills men and it's just and then there's like an old june lockhart is involved it's bananas oh i love that i haven't seen that yet but i have to say i love a good patty duke horror movie outing and since this episode is dropping the week of the 50th anniversary of rosemary's baby i what? will reference uh the fact that there was a made for tv sequel to rosemary's baby oh, yeah. called Look what's happened to rosemary's baby starring patty, patty duke. duke so check that and out tina louise is involved yeah and rosemary's baby is like now a grown adult man who i believe is stephen mccaddy and oh yes yeah, and in a rock band 
Right. I need to. Uh, most of these are on YouTube. Well, I've got the DVD of that if you oh, need to hey, borrow Tiger. it. I got Ooh. you. All right. <laughs> Sam, nice. thank you so much for joining us today and talking horror, comedy, and your illustrious career. I feel like you've done so many things. We barely scratched the surface. Scratch. But uh, where can people find you? You can find me on Instagram at the Sam Pancake, all one word. I'm on Twitter at jsampancake because someone already took Sam Pancake. And you can follow me on Facebook, Sam Pancake. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. Uh, please check out Sam all of the places you can find him and listen to the gasp listen to his new podcast check out all of these wonderful things that he's been in I'm sure many of them are available on streaming yeah and uh, just keep your eyes out for this amazing performer he's one of our favorites here uh, and I'm Michael Verratti this has been Dead for Filth yours always in glam and gore good night and good luck <laughs>